This week on the Backtable Podcast. If you're not nurse bearing and you're, you're resecting the sympathetic chain with everything, a lot of these patients hover around a heart rate of, you know, 120 to sometimes up to 150 sometimes. And it can take weeks for that to normalize. Now, some of it gets better while they're in the hospital, but some will, will notice that. I've had, you know, these days, you know, people wear the Apple Watch that'll tell them what their heart rate is. And, and, that, and that will last for a while, even post-op, once they're at home. It will go back down, but yeah, I think that's I think that's all sympathetic drive that gets disrupted with with taking these out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. We have Clint Carey from Indiana University and Gagan Prakash from Tata Memorial Hospital. Gagan, Clint, how are you all doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to the conversation and looking forward to getting into it. Doing really good, Aditya, and excited to be here at Backtable Urology. Awesome. Well, well I'm thrilled about this episode. Um, RPLND, post-chemo RPLND, it's certainly an operation that's near and dear to my heart. And, you know, I really couldn't think of two more qualified people to bring in their perspective. Clint, I'm a coordinary Pentieri referral center at Indiana, kind of a mecca for germ cell tumor management. Gagan is the chief of urologic oncology at Tata Memorial Hospital, huge cancer center, high volume, advanced stage RPLND. So not only kind of getting into the disease, but maybe how the disease is managed in, in different settings is intriguing. So let's jump on into it. New diagnosis metastatic testis cancer patient. Is that somebody that Eurowonk and Medonk is seeing at that initial diagnosis, or are, are you typically seeing them after they've had a visit or in consultation with your medical oncology colleagues? Here, we have obviously a great relationship with our medical oncologists and it goes either way. Sometimes the patients get referred in to both of us and we'll see them in combination. And then sometimes they go directly to medical oncology if it's pretty already well established, they're going to need chemotherapy up front. Sometimes even with bulky disease, we may see them together knowing that just to kind of get that introduction to them, knowing that we're going to need to probably see them once chemotherapy is over. So for us, there's no defined template. It has to happen this way. It's a little bit of, you know, what functionally works best and they can see us both. And, and sometimes they just see medical oncology up front. Sure. How about you all, Gagan? Are you guys seeing them on the front end? Generally, are the patients having had their orchiectomy in an outside hospital or are you all doing them? How does that work? Yeah. So we do have something called as a disease management group with a specific dedicated medical oncologist for GU. And because of the volumes, we are not able to control who sees the patient first. But we have systems in place to ensure that uh, when the patient is seen first, either by the medical oncologist or the surgeon, the same protocols are followed. And we also have certain red flags in place. So if we, there's a patient with a high volume disease that needs to be on a chemotherapy ASAP, even if it's seen by the surgeon, it's red flagged and the medical oncologist is called immediately. Probably around 20% of our patients are the ones who have their orchidectomy done outside and then come to us. And we still see a lot of scrotal violations. So around 15 to 18% of our patients with germ cell tumor would have a scrotal violation, mostly, you know, considering it to be aerosol or some other benign pathology. Okay. So 
that's kind of similar. If it's possible, we're not algorithm about it. I do like to kind of visit them on the front end. So at least the concept of possible surgery after chemotherapy is introduced and it's not coming out of the blue that, you know, you've just been through chemotherapy and, and now we may be looking at some substantial surgery. What are your all's practice patterns in terms of patients that you might consider going straight to chemotherapy without orchiectomy? Are there any kind of general criteria biopsies, yes, no. I'd love to hear what you guys do and then maybe offer my two cents. Yeah, I like what you said too about introducing that concept of you may need surgery after your chemotherapy just so that's not thrown all at them at the end. Again, we're fortunate our medical oncologists are well-versed and they, they tell them that even if we don't see them. But that is, I think that's helpful just to let them know. It could go both ways. The patient would like to know that maybe after chemotherapy, I'm completely done. Um, I did not have to think about it, but I guess I would air on more, you know, more information is probably better than less. But the scenario you just mentioned, it definitely happens. I mean, the clear case scenarios are ones where you know it's a non-seminomatous germ cell tumor. Their AFP is elevated. They have bulky disease. Maybe they're in pain, back pain. If they have bulky lung metastases and things like that, not going to delay it getting them an orchiectomy. You know it's a some form of a mixed germ cell tumor most likely and they're probably going to need surgery afterwards. And so you kind of already know the pathway they're going to go down. That would probably be the most common scenario is if, you know, they had a testis mass presented with bulky disease, uh, in pain and scenarios like that. Right. So we see those bulky diseases very often and typically patients who are either symptomatic because of disease or if on the cross-sectional imaging we can see that this disease is glaringly bulky and the markers are in thousands, we would offer these patients upfront chemotherapy. If the markers are unequivocal, then we don't need a biopsy. But if there is a doubt, then we would go ahead with a biopsy from an accessible site. And we actually looked at these figures because this happens like a common scenario over here where you have to offer upfront chemotherapy. And around 14% of our patients, around 14.2% of our patients are the ones who would have an upfront chemotherapy and then an orchidectomy is done along with an RPLND. And what we found interestingly was that the disease had responded completely even at the primary in close to 50% of the patients. And we are wondering if, you know, the blood testis barrier is not working over here because the testicular masses are on an average much larger and they have probably, you know, because of the bulk of the disease, the size of the disease, the blood testis barrier has, you know, kind of been breached and the chemotherapy is able to reach the primary site as well. Just to add a little bit on the earlier thing, so, you know, over here, in addition to the medical part, there are a lot of logistical issues for which we have to ensure that the patient understands that an RPLND would be required after the chemotherapy. We do end up losing a few patients after the chemotherapy because of, you know, either the funds or various reasons. And so their arrangements of the funds, their prehabilitation, their arrangements for the stay after the chemotherapy, everything gets organized in the first week itself. Perfect. Love that. Clint, what were you about to say? Yeah, I was going to say, I agree with, you know, the histology. I mean, most of the ones that we take out afterwards, either at the time of an RPLND or sometimes in the case of pure seminoma, when we're not going to do an RPLND after chemotherapy, it's, it's either, you know, just treated germ cell tumor with no live components to it, or if it's a non-seminomatous tumor, then we'll just see teratoma. I, I don't see a lot of residual active, you know, embryonal carcinoma, yolk sac tumor, those kind of things after they've gotten chemotherapy. It's usually treated cancer or teratoma. So yeah, there is a supposed blood test barrier, but this, this chemotherapy is pretty effective. 
Yeah. So kind of agree with all of that. I think at higher volume centers, foregoing a biopsy, if the diagnosis is unequivocal, certainly the AFP is elevated. That sounds like a pretty reasonable option. I think looking at the imaging and especially the coronals is always critical. If they've got a nice bulky tumor extending up the spermatic cord, I don't really like to do an orchiectomy in that context. Going back to the kind of response from the testis, you know, we did some microRNA work in kind of a real world setting of patients receiving orchiectomy and about five of those patients were post-chemo and all their microarrays were negative. I mean, it's kind of intriguing to think about almost you leave a marker lesion in place, a highly manageable marker lesion, give them their chemo, do the orc. If it's negative, likely you're not dealing with viable germ cell tumor and then maybe you put them on a closed observation program and, you know, if they start growing, then pull the trigger and do it for teratoma, which is statistically what you're going to be dealing with. You know, the, the HCGs, sometimes in these, you know, super bulky metastases, very high HCGs, Clint, your all's group has put out some data on the likelihood of either teratoma or viable germ cell tumor and kind of super HCG, pure choreo syndromes. Is that data robust enough to start making decisions on in terms of, you know, post-chemo management? Yeah, that, that was published a few years ago, I think, by one of our fellows was the first author on that. I guess real quick before I jump into that, one thought I had about, I think the difficult ones to kind of pull the chemotherapy trigger without some sort of tissue diagnosis ahead of time are the ones who have bulky disease, marker negative. And so if they go ahead and get chemotherapy, you don't know, you know, if it's seminoma, then you're kind of trying to decide about a difficult thing versus if they just observing any residual mass and and doing something, if something changes, those are the hardest ones to make a decision on, especially if they're in pain, because then even getting them a percutaneous biopsy sometimes can take some time to get arranged. I think those are the most challenging to know exactly what to do with. But moving on to the really elevated HCGs, you know, over 100,000. So that the idea for that came about because we had done a few cases where it was everything looked like pure choriocarcinoma from a clinical perspective. Either they had or had not had an orchiectomy, but they had previously had, had bulky lung metastases, pretty bulky abdominal disease, gotten chemotherapy, the ACGs, which were in the six figures had come down to normal. Although our medical oncologists, a lot of times with those patients with really high HCGs, they will watch them for quite some time before they refer them to us for surgery. And sometimes they may even wait months, even after their HCG is normalized, because those, you know, those are poor risk patients. So there's a decent number of them that are going to fail induction chemotherapy and need salvage chemotherapy before surgery, especially if they have multiple sites of disease they're not going to rush them in for post-chemo RPLND. But if the markers remain normal for, you know, a few months, then they'll refer them. And, you know, we were doing some of these with really high HCGs at the time they were diagnosed, and they were challenging. They were difficult. And most of the pathology was always necrosis. And so I'm thinking, geez, we're putting these guys through some big-time surgeries for, you know, not a lot of added benefit. And so let's look at this group with this and see... And actually that, I mean, I don't know, you know, to get back to your question about towards the end of it, I don't know if we have enough data to say, you know, if you had pure choreo and you had chemotherapy and you've got bulky residual disease, maybe we shouldn't do surgery on you because it's always necrosis. But in that study, our data suggested that, you know, if we do know that it's pure choreo, I, I believe, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head from that study, but almost everybody 
was necrosis. And there were, I think, one or two patients that either had a transformed teratoma or something like that. But it is an interesting thought exercise. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a long day at the office and it seems like it goes one of two ways. You're either watching that HCG kind of plateau, peter on down, which is well described in these kind of super choriocarcinoma syndromes. And you're like, okay, they probably don't have viable germ cell term as you do it. And shocker, there's nothing there. And it can be a tough case. Or you're watching it and then all of a sudden blip of the markers, blip, blip of the markers. And, you know, next thing you know, their HCGs sky high again. One other thought I had is even sometimes they have bulky disease, as long as they can stand it from a kind of anesthetic perspective, if they've got these huge soccer ball size masses for whatever reason, I'll try to get the orchid to be done just so they don't have to kind of handle that for the next, you know, three months or so. What do you think, Doug? Anything to add on top of that? I think the moment the HCG, so I mean, when we looked at our RPLND numbers, the highest range of HCG that we had was around 21 lakhs which would be, I think... Two million, right? Two million, two million, yeah. So we, we know those patients are not going to do well. And I think we have the similar dilemmas about when to go in for the ARP and Should we just wait and see how the disease is behaving? Exactly what Clint mentioned uh, concerns here. Perfect. So yeah, and I think also if they start kind of uptaking, it's important just to check that brain imaging again, get ultrasound on the other side, make sure that there's nothing kind of going on in those departments. All right, so... We've kind of gotten to whether or not to do an orchiectomy or not. We've got plenty to cover here. So I'm guessing standard, non-critical, inpatient chemo type of patients, sperm banking, trying to get all that going in these scenarios where it's challenging. And we've got scenarios in place to try to get them inpatient sperm banking, some logistics required there. But okay, so we talked a little bit about choreo. I think it's fascinating. And I think, I mean, my takeaway from that paper, and it's something like 90% fibrosis necrosis is don't jump in. You know, give it some time, watch it involute, follow those markers. But are there other scenarios, you know, whether that sites of disease, appearance of disease, histopathology, where you're thinking, you know, this patient's, they've got a RPLND coming. Chip shot, pure teratoma, lots of it in the orchiectomy. What are some of the ones where like this guy's got, got an RPLND coming? Right. So I think typically patients in which they've had a salvage uh, chemotherapy, I think irrespective of the size, we have to kind of go in. Some of these variant histologies also, I think for lyric cells and cerulees, we, we keep a very low threshold for a staging RPLND, considering that they are not responsive to chemo. And yeah, teratomas, where, where we know that majority of the pathology in the testis on the primary site was a teratoma, and that's what we are likely to found in the retroperitoneum. And in those cases, even if we do start with the chemotherapy, we kind of monitor them early and then probably keep low thresholds for going inside and planning an RPLND for these cases, yeah. Yeah, as far as, you know, things in the orchiectomy, clearly teratoma <clears throat> is going to put you at risk for having teratoma left after chemotherapy. We actually looked at our group of patients and the increasing percent of teratoma is a predictor for the likelihood of finding teratoma. So one of the early studies that came out of our center was if you just had teratoma, yes or no, in the orchiectomy, and that predicted a greater likelihood of finding teratoma. And then we took it a step further and said, okay, well, not just yes or no, do you have teratoma? Is it 10%, 20%, 30%, 80%, whatever? And we did see a correlation with the higher percentage of teratoma, the higher percentage of teratoma in the retroperitoneum at the time of surgery, assuming there's a residual mass. And so I think teratoma in the primary is in the primary testicle is important predictor. Clearly, you know, at the time of presentation, bulkier disease, 
it's hard to take a 12 centimeter mass and shrink it to nothing over the course of chemotherapy. And so those are patients that are, you're going to line up for a post-chemo RPLND most likely. Those would be some just additional additions to Goggins' comments. Yeah, for me, if they've got cystic masses at any point kind of early on, that usually kind of tips me off that there's probably some cystic teratoma in there. You know, a lot, lot of efforts to tr- help predict histology, some nomograms out there. I think the long and short of it is they're really probably not robust enough to safely omit RPLND. All right, so, so they've got their chemo, and we'll start with kind of the, the low-hanging fruit, residual masses in the retroperitoneum. Actually, let me back up. Pure, complete response to chemo, of course, there's some different philosophical approaches to this. But maybe just to kind of keep it moving, are there scenarios that are complete radiographic responses where you would advise for a post-chemo RPLND? Not many at Indiana. Obviously, I think most would know that we are advocates for observing complete responses. I think I can remember one recently where uh, the patient, it had a mixture of some mixed germ cell tumor elements and PNET in his testicle. And so, and he had some retroperitoneal disease, he got chemotherapy and his mass shrunk. It was kind of right at a centimeter, a little bit less than a centimeter. And we went ahead and did his just for concern of leaving PNET. So there are some, you know, kind of one-off scenarios like that, that, that probably makes sense. But just the standard germ cell tumor complete response, we're at Indiana, we're not we're not operating on those patients. Gagan, you mentioned salvage chemo earlier. Yeah, so other than I, I think I kind of let me take both the questions again together. So I mean, you know, patients in which we know that we are likely to go inside, definitely the earlier question is definitely those bulky diseases that we see very often. And I think a lot of times we we would see patients in which in the plain scan you could see calcification, you know, glaring over there, and you know that there's these patients have a sizable proportion of teratomas. So that also does happen at times. Now, these kind of a scenario where uh, your patient has received a salvage chemotherapy, I think we know that the one centimeter cutoff may not be very valid for them. And in those patients, probably, uh, even if it's not meeting the one centimeter cutoff, we would still go ahead for, for RPLND post the salvage chemotherapies. I don't know what are your policies for the Lydic and Sertoli cells in case the retroperitoneum doesn't show any nodes. Do you always stage them if there is a primary, which is a Lydic or Sertoli? Yeah, that's a challenging situation that Lydic cell, Sertoli cell, you know, most are benign, right? And you don't have to worry about them, but there is a small percentage that are malignant. But the only, you know, the best predictive factors that we have are those everything that comes from the orchiectomy specimen and even those aren't perfect and so the patients that we offer an RPLND for you know because in those situations there is no chemotherapy that's going to be helpful for the most part and so if they have usually two malignant features in their orchiectomy specimen then we will offer them an RPLND that's based on some I don't think we even actually published it we presented it in an abstract at one of the AUAs many years ago but that was just based on our own data of seeing if they had, you know, what's the likelihood of finding some microscopic disease in the retroperitoneum if you had one, two, three, four, or five of these risk factors in the in the orchiectomy specimen. So that's kind of how we handle those. If it's if they don't have any risk factors, we we don't do any surgery for those. But if they have two or more, we would offer them surgery for sure. What about salvage chemo at Indiana, Clint? After salvage chemo, good complete response 
Same as with induction chemo. If they get if they normalize their CT scan, then we would observe them. And when you get these smaller sub-centimeter nodes, but there are multiple of them. So, you know, you have like a 3mm here, like a 4mm and a 5mm, all at, you know, short distances per hour take or into the cable. Would you still follow the one centimeter cutoff of individual or do you think that this needs to come out? I think, you know, some component of shared decision making. You know, I watch sub-centimeter masses. When I counsel patients, I'm fairly promotional and biased towards that. But I do say, you know, there's been a study and there's 140 patients and 12 patients relapsed and four of them died. So, you know, at the end of the day, you got about a 2% chance of dying. Whether that would have been a salvageable scenario with early surgery or not is debatable. So it comes across as biased, but, you know, I bring it up. I bring it up to them. And I think in these context, I would also kind of generally say the curative scenario that we're trying to ferret out is teratoma. So if we, you know, re-image you and say eight to 12 weeks and there's any change at all whatsoever, we're going to pull the trigger. But I don't think, you know, necessarily jumping in is is generally my preference. But I think it's, a, you know, your point is very well taken that I think you got to look carefully and see what it looks like. Is there anything left? Is it completely gone? Or is there something residual taken? You know, was there some yolk sac tumor? How much did the match shrink? All those types of things to make a decision. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, to be fully transparent, I mean, that you have to bring up the memorial data that where they do operate on everybody and, you know, they find teratoma as high as 20, 25% of the time even with normal CT scans. Our data would not suggest that. We don't see 20 to 25% relapses of all those people we observe. So there's some discrepancy, different patient populations perhaps. There's also a kind of a famous story that, that Dr. Reinhorn will tell sometimes about a patient who had some lung disease, got shrunk with chemotherapy, followed the patient for 25 years. He developed a lung cancer and had to have uh, a mediastinal node dissection for his lung cancer. And they did not find lung cancer in his lymph nodes, but they found microscopic teratoma that had been sitting there for 25 years doing nothing. So I don't know. Who knows? But I, I think, you know, we, we, it comes down to how many patients do you have to operate on to benefit one, right, number needed to treat. And I think that number is pretty high. And so you're probably going to create some problems operating on everybody. Obviously, I'm biased as well, but I think that number needed to treat is, is reasonably high. Okay, so masses greater than a centimeter. I do want to kind of get to some of the intricacies of the operation, but throwing it out there, short axis is kind of what I'm focusing on. I used to get excited about craniocaudal, moved a bit away from that. Greater than a centimeter, really, unless there's something that's a substantial contraindication, that's generally going to be an operation. Is that accurate? Greater than a centimeter? Yeah. Yeah, for the most part. Uh, without getting too far in the weeds, I would just say yes. Okay. Yeah. The weeds are thick. So, <laughs> <laughs> does that sound about right? Yeah. So would I. I would agree with that. All right. So we're preparing. We're going to talk to the patient there. I'll say, you know, not ultra complex, retroperitoneal only disease. Actually, what does a more standard RPLND kind of look like to you? I'll throw it out there. Mass didn't sh- shrink that much, suggesting maybe high proportion of teratoma without any substantial desmoplastic reaction, solitary node, five-ish centimeters, primary landing zone. That's kind of like a favorable post-chemo RPLND. Sound okay? W- what's the opposite end of the spectrum? When are you like, oh man, I've done a bunch of these, but it's going to be some work tomorrow? 
Oh, any seminoma patient is just a nightmare. I wouldn't say any, uh, but but more often than not, those are just different beasts for whatever reason. But non-seminoma, yeah, I mean, standard, like you said, you get three, four, five centimeter tumor in the primary landing zone. If you want to move towards the template discussion, you know, we've done obviously work in that over the decade or two. And so if you had disease only in the primary landing zone and, and it was around those measurements we just mentioned and markers are normal, we would do whatever side it was, right or left sided template. And our data would suggest that we're not seeing any recurrences on the contralateral side. And so that's, that's kind of how we would approach a standard, standard patient in that scenario. So good risk, primary landing zone, good response to chemo, template aid dissection. I guess you kind of, for the sake of completeness, run through other data that exists. Gagan, how does that sound to you? Yeah, so we'd agree with the same. So even we don't see many extra template recurrences for this kind of a disease. And we would generally try and do a nerve sparing on the opposite side if we get this kind of a disease. Yeah. All right. So those are going to be the straightforward ones. What are going to be the ones that, so the seminomas, maybe again, I am happy to start out, you know, tumors encasing bilateral renal, hy- renal hyla. I never kind of love those. Actually, vessel elevation, I've, I kind of like that because there's going to be some room back there. If they've got bulky retrocrural disease, I think uh, most of the time that's teratoma and it kind of shells out reasonably well. Interiliac disease, sometimes that, that kind of makes me a bit more nervous if you get into trouble over there. I feel like that can be a challenging area to sort out. Shockingly, despite the fact that I do boatloads of pelvic lymph node dissections for prostate cancer and, and bladder cancer, when they're stuck into the pelvis, that's kind of never fun. All right, so I'm kind of just, you know, exposing my soul here, guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I would much rather be operating around the aorta or vena cava than around the pelvic vessels, just because there's so many more of them and they're not predictable. Whereas conversely, you know, the aorta and vena cava are pretty, pretty predictable for the most part, where they're, where they are and where they're not. So the pelvic, bulky pelvic disease is no fun. I've been in trouble in the anteriliac location for sure. I don't worry as much about that location. Pelvic, the pelvic stuff is no fun. The you know, bulky retrocrural disease can be a challenge too. We've been fortunate over the years to have an excellent thoracic surgeon that we do those with, especially as they extend up higher, kind of into more to that middle posterior mediastinal location. But uh, yeah, and the seminoma, you know, as we presented at this past AUA, we, we don't do a lot of post-chemo seminomas. And I think that is changing. You know, the guidelines talks about this three centimeter thing, and we we just don't, we've kind of gotten away from that, but we presented 13 patients, I think over something like a decade. So we don't, we don't do a lot of post-chemo seminomas anymore. Yeah. I think there was actually a fairly nice multinational, multi-institutional review of histology after salvage chemo in seminoma patients. And you know, the rates of viable germ cell tumor were eight, 10%. So I think you got a good option we've got a nice morbid option with, with surgery and, and there may be some highly select patients that, that may benefit. Okay. So that's, um, that all sounds good. And I think, you know, when you get up into that upper retrocrural area, you do want to be cognizant of, you know, maintaining vascular supply to the spinal cord and keeping an eye on the artery of Adam Kiewitz and all those kinds of things, which could lead to some, you know, really pronounced tectic complications. Actually, just before you move on there, that that's actually brings up a good point. To do these, in my opinion, correctly, you have to, just from a pure abdominal standpoint, you have to take down all the lumbar arteries and all the lumbar veins, quite honestly, to be able to move these vessels around to get everything out from behind them as well. 
doing that in the abdomen alone creates zero risk of spinal ischemia. Unless maybe, you know, you're operating on a 70-something-year-old with a calcified aorta and their collateral blood flow isn't very good, which doesn't happen that often, but it does come about from time to time. But when you do need to think about it, like you mentioned, is when you're doing combined surgery in the abdomen and chest, and as you go up into the thoracic aorta, they're also taking down those intercostal arteries up there. We actually about maybe eight to 10 years ago now started a, where we have a protocol, post-op protocol, well, even in the operating room too. So when we're taking down all those blood supply, basically from high up in the chest to down into the pelvis, kind of treat them like, like those really big thoracic and abdominal aortic replacements that they do for vascular disease, where you're keeping their maps very high in the operating room and post-op. Try to increase blood pressure just to create that collateral flow, make sure that they get good blood supply to the spinal cord. But that's really the only scenario where that comes into play. Standard NARPLND, that's not really a risk. So I think I'm scared of or worried about, you know, the four retros. So the first one is the retro aortic. Typically, you know, when you see that the lumbers are pulled up because the mass being behind the aorta, sometimes it resembles almost like a jellyfish. We can, you know, on the arterial phase, you can see the aorta and the lumbers uh, pulled up. I don't know whether to call it a jellyfish or an octopus, depending on which part of the world you are. Then, of course, the retro cables, which are right at the hilum. So when, you know, the point where both the renal veins are coming and the mass is behind the cava. And the third retro is the retrocrural, which can sometimes give you a problem, especially if it's on that side at the level of the SMA. And I think the fourth one is at times when you get these retroaortic renal veins and the mass is sitting bang on it, you know, an aberrant, aberrant whistle. And that can sometimes uh, give you trouble. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. You know, retroaortic renal vein is just kind of a loss of a good friend where you just kind of know where your upper limit of the dissection is. All right, so just a couple of things that I, I I wanted to make sure. So counseling, usually I'm pretty much like a 5-ish percent viable germ cell tumor, 50% teratoma, 45% fibrosis necrosis. Is this roughly in the ballpark of what you guys are telling patients? I think it's 40-40-20 uh, for us. So viable, uh, which is generally 10 to 15 in most quoted literature for us is around 20%. And I don't know if it's it's because we are seeing a higher risk disease and with, you know, as I mentioned, diseases which, which are bulky and tumor markers which are, you know, really high. And we sometimes feel that, you know, just like there is a highest risk or a very high risk in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, we wonder if we have a poorest risk for our patients with, with these kind of bulky disease. And I'm curious, Gagan, what, what's the kind of standard chemotherapy regimen, induction regimen that you guys use? So the induction is uh, BEP, four cycles. So and if there's somebody who's likely to have the lungs are not good and a bleotoxicity is expected, we would use a VIP, four cycles, for 2B and higher and stage 3 disease, yeah. For us, yeah, it's kind of more along those lines that you mentioned, Aditya, it's, you know, 5-ish percent chance of malignancy. And then kind of the standard, you know, is about half the other two. But that changes, you know, I mean, that's like out of, out of the box, like standard, this is what we may find. But that, that's obviously individualized to patients. Like we were talking about earlier, if you had 80% teratoma in your testicle and you got a cystic mass in your retroperitoneum, it didn't change with chemotherapy. Your actual risk is probably closer to 100% teratoma. So you can individualize it a little bit, but that's, that's kind of the, the standard. If you group everybody together, kind of more uh, group level data. Okay, so patient counseling, you know, I usually start out, I'm going to tell you about the common things, I'm going to tell you about the bad things. 
before I offer my two cents, how does this conversation go like <laughs> for you all? Guy, why don't we start out with you? Patient counseling, here's what to expect. Obviously, I mean, most of them are younger boys with very, very anxious patient parents. And uh, I think all of us t- have to go through that. We tell them about all the risks. So the commonest things like the ileus, which could be sometimes prolonged and chyle leaks are still almost 20 to 25 percent with us over here. But the more the more dreaded ones requiring, say, vascular reconstructions or, say, nephrectomy, additional procedures or a prolonged ICU stay and such things is uh, something which we tell them. But we also tell them that in the, you know, last 200 RPLN days that have happened over in this place over the years, this is the number of times it has happened. So this is, I think, one surgery where when we use the rates of complications for counseling of our patients, we ensure that we tell our rates and the updated rates of complications because these rates could really, really vary amongst the centers and in different parts of the country. So that's how it is. We've been actually looking at making some 3D animation models to or videos to explain this to the patients because, you know, explaining about how these masses could be intricately related to the great vessels and what are the risks when which we are likely to fear uh, or which we are likely to face is might be better explained by these uh, models. I mean, when we, when we could do these 3D models and uh, for our partial nephrectomies, maybe it's it's time we should try them for our RPLNDs as well. Totally. And I, it's not lost on me. It's not like a post-chemo RPLND is a post-chemo RPLND. They can be very different, different, different ends of the spectrum. But again, maybe just kind of out of the box, garden variety counseling. Clint, what, what's your kind of post-chemo RPLND counseling spiel look like? I mean, the, the obviously you have a little bit more risk than when compared to a primary RPLND. There's, you know, depending on the CT scan, like you said, I mean, this is not every RPLND is different. Every post-chemotherapy mass is sitting somewhere different. It's touching the aorta of Vienna cave in a different spot, whether it's the renal vessels or down near the bifurcation where it may be hard to get control of. And so, you know, we go through the risk of bleeding, needing a blood transfusion. Usually if we're going to do some vascular work, we have that planned ahead of time, although that's not, doesn't happen 100% that way. And obviously, depending on their CT scan, we'll counsel them about possible nephrectomy if we need to do that. Sometimes we have to counsel them about a possible duodenal resection and things like that. A couple of things I found kind of with the more standard ones, a lot of patients will get, particularly if you're not able to spare nerves with these bulkier disease, a lot of patients will get pain in their, in their thigh which happens uh, not while they're in the hospital. It's usually after they go home. And it can be pretty intense. It's like a nerve-type pain that, that patients complain about. It goes away, but it takes some time. I don't always explain that particular thing to patients ahead of time just because I feel like we're talking about so much. I don't want to overwhelm them with all the potential thing that's going to happen. But I try to tell patients at least when they're going home from the hospital after the fact. And then some patients with really bulky disease, things that we'll see happen, particularly if you're doing retroperitoneal dissections, and let's say they have bulky disease up around the portal vein and SMA, celiac, and you're having to, either you or your general surgery colleague is is doing all this work up in this area as well, you take away a lot of the sympathetic chain and the ganglia up there. A lot of these patients will have rapid GI transit, otherwise known as diarrhea, for quite some time afterwards related to that. So those are, those are unique things, kind of only a subset of patients go through, but that's an interesting thing to see happen with these really bulky dissections. But more standard is is kind of similar to what Gagam was talking about with this kind of leg pain as an addition. 
So, Clint, this this was the, you know, the sympathetic chain was something which has uh, often intrigued us. In terms of, do you think that it does lead to some tachycardia or a prolonged tachycardia in the post-operative period, even if the patient has been adequately replaced with the fluids and blood? I mean, often I've noticed that there's a differential temperature in the lower limbs of these patients after having handled or maybe injured the sympathetic trunk. Do, do you think there's a relationship with, with this? Yeah, 100%. If you're not nurse bearing and you're you're resecting the sympathetic chain with everything, a lot of these patients hover around a heart rate of, you know, 120 to sometimes up to 150 sometimes. And it can take weeks for that to normalize. Now, some it gets better while they're in the hospital, but some will, will notice that. I've had, you know, these days, you know, people wear the Apple Watch that'll tell them what their heart rate is. And, and, that, and that will last for a while, even post-op, once they're at home. It will go back down, but yeah, I think that's I think that's all sympathetic drive that gets disrupted with with taking these out. So yeah, that's definitely that's definitely real. And patients they will notice differential temperatures, and they've actually just had a patient email me about it uh, this past week. And that leg that you did that to won't sweat, or that and that foot won't sweat. And I've had people tell me they've done all kinds of things. They put a sock on with lotion inside of it, trying to keep their foot, you know, moisturized. So yeah, this happens, and I think it's related to that. Yeah. So I think the duodenal part, if they came with a GI bleed, sometimes, which they do, I think you got to be kind of ready for that uh, coker maneuver to be somewhat hectic. I think you guys generally covered it. Garden variety, as long as like a huge mass occupying the entirety of the intra cable space. I typically quote preservation of ejaculatory function rates at about 80%. That's compared to closer to, you know, high 90s for primary RPLNDs. Ascites, I'm, I'm kind of more in the 1% to 3% range are, are the numbers that I will generally quote. And maybe we can talk about ascites and management of ascites here in a bit. The other big ones, I mean, I, you know, I do mention about a 1% chance of dying as a part of the kind of the big ones and the common ones, but the common ones, like, you know, bleeding, writing, blood transfusion, everything that you just mentioned, I really try to focus on a possible risk of anejaculation, a 1% to 2% risk of chylus societies, and then, you know, somewhere around a 1% chance of dying. Yeah, chylus societies, um, yeah, it's it's on it's low. Um, now that changes with the bulkier disease. If we're resecting the vena cava, that risk goes up. But yeah, on average, it's pretty low. Same thing, nurse bearings, you know, with both chemotherapy, sometimes you can do it and sometimes you can't, obviously. Just depends on how the residual disease is. So we talked through that. So yeah, so I, I would I would definitely agree with those things. What about extra retroperitoneal sites of disease? Maybe just relatively common ones, I should say. Liver, neck, lung, retrocrural, intrailiac. I'm happy to share what I'll typically do, and then we can get your all's opinion. So, you know, there's obviously varying rates of concordance and discordance for retrocrural. For, okay, first off, I guess if there's persistent radiographic disease, generally broad strokes will try to handle it in the retrocrural area, the liver concomitantly. Maybe I'll just pause there to get your all's takes on that. So I think it would depend on the intensity of what kind of a hepatectomy is required and also what is the kind of blood loss and intensity of the surgery and the time required for the surgery from the retroperitoneum. Also, I mean, things like if, if there is a nephrectomy required in the retroperitoneum, so doing a nephrectomy and a hepatectomy at the same time is something which we would not want to go for. So there'll be various factors which would help us do that. So if it's like, you know, a small lesion in the liver and not a very bulky retroperitoneum, then we would do it at the same time. But if both 
have a, a higher intensity, then we would prefer to do it staged. We can sometimes get tempted because, you know, we, you know, you are there at the abdomen. But I think one has to just pause after the first surgery and then say that, hey, do we want to go ahead or it'll be safer to do it as a second second surgery? Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. It's, I think if, if we can do it safely, we're going to do both at the same time. We've put out data in the past where there is quite a bit of concordance. If there's necrosis or fibrosis in the retroperitoneum, 90% of the time it's the same thing in the liver. And so it lends credit to you know staging them. If it's anything complex, it's it seems reasonable to stage it. If it's necrosis, then maybe you don't have to go back for a complicated liver surgery. But yeah, on, on average, we take a look at the films and talk about it with our liver surgeon. And if it's something that we feel like we can do both of them safely, then we'll try to do them at the same time. Yeah. I mean, again, it's so hard to put all these things in like neat, tidy boxes. And, you know, ideally you'd actually do the liver first, right under low CVPs. And that just kind of makes all that easier, but you've got to make sure that you do the highest priority operation at hand, which is typically the RPLND. And, you know, if that's a eight hour banger with all your cavotomies and aortotomies, maybe a added liver resection on the patient's best interest. All right. So generally, if it's kind of straightforward, knock it out, you're there. If there's anything complex, RPLND first is what I'm hearing. And the liver, not to mention you get this wonderful exposure and the liver folks come in and they just kind of make it go all the heck real quick. So, okay, fantastic. And Next, some people talk about doing the neck and the retroperitoneum at the same time. Good idea, bad idea, any opinion? We just did one about two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. Yeah, it makes sense. Obviously, it depends on the disease, right? But yeah, I think I think when it makes sense it, to do them at the same time, I mean, you consolidate into one surgery for the patient, but it depends on how complicated one or the or both are. But yeah, I think when you can consolidate them, and same thing goes for in the chest, you know, lung nodule or something like that, that maybe got bigger as well. So you're worried about that being teratoma that you can combine with a, a VATS or a thoracotomy, depending on the situation. We try to combine them when it makes sense. And if it's going to be something where, you know, the abdomen is the predominant problem, then we'll say, listen, we got to, we got to take care of your abdomen first. We don't think we can do both. It's going to be too much surgery for you in one day and you'll come back for, for this other surgery. So I think it's just trying to put together and see what, what your skill set will allow you to do in one day without overwhelming the patient. Yeah, so for us, the retroperitoneum and the neck is the commonest combination being done concomitantly for two reasons, because uh, this is, you know, this combination is something which you could do simultaneously. I mean, you, the, the neck surgeons could stand at the other end of the table and do it. And also, uh, because head and neck cancers are so common in India, our, our head and neck surgeons are like really, you know, super surgeons, gifted and really fast. So most of the times we are able to do this combination together, but a VATS or a lung surgery is uh, generally as a as a second sitting. And if it's a VATS, then we would maybe combine with the retroperitoneum on one side, compare both the pathologies, and then see if the other side just needs to be operated upon or not. Yeah, and that kind of is consistent with the retroperitoneum doesn't necessarily always predict the lung, but one lung predicts the other lung. Does this sound about right? Right. Yeah, we wouldn't do both sides of the chest at the same time. That, that's kind of a lot to recover from for sure. And any kind of particular, Clint, I have to imagine that you guys have your kind of post-chemo RPLND anesthesiology team. Maybe you all do as well, Guggen. We don't really have a post-chemo RPLND team, but anesthesiologists, what are the things that they're going to be kind of dialed in on? Yeah, we have a number of the anesthesiologists that are well-versed. Some of them, you know, grew up in the program, trained here, and then stayed on staff. So they're, they've seen a lot of these. But yeah, it's it's critical to know you know, bleomycin, keeping your FIL2 on the lower side, on, on the very low side, 
and fluid management. That doesn't mean you're running these patients dry like you would for like a pure liver surgery, but just being cognizant of not giving them what they need, but not giving them too much. That in combination with the FAL2 levels are, are kind of the big, big things that they need to be cognizant of. Right. So we do have these supramajor resections at various sites. So I think most of our anesthesia people are used to, I would say, heroic and adventurous surgeries with massive blood losses and they manage them well. But I think one thing which we've kind of learned from the pediatric, from our pediatric colleagues and which our anesthesia people kind of insist is about the traction on the mesentery, which could be for hours together. So whereas if we get the entire bowel up and packed, our field of the surgery is far more comfortable, especially when they are major masses. But they said that if it is possible, then take the mesentery in certain gaps. So let the mesentery fall back for some time or operate in one area, let the bubble be on the other side. And they believe that probably that could prevent, you know, or kind of improvise a lot of things for the patient, including the third spacing and uh, various other things. So I don't know whether, whether that really makes a difference, but at least for the pediatric population, pediatric surgeries, they feel that that has made a lot of difference for them. Yeah, I appreciate that. I definitely, if I am going to put the bells up on the chest and pack them out under the way under a towel or whatever, I'll definitely set an hourly timer just to kind of make sure I take a peek at them episodically and nothing kind of hectic happens there. All right. So we've counseled our patient. We've um, talked to our anesthesiologist and we're finally kind of getting ready for the operation. We haven't even really talked about careful review of imaging and what that, you know, what your prep work looks like. And I mean, this has been fascinating. I was a little bit afraid of this, that an hour would pass and we haven't after you got to the operation. So out of respect of your time, Clint and Guggen and, and for our listeners, I think we actually have to save the actual operation for a subsequent chat. How does that sound? That's a good cliffhanger right there. That'll bring them back for more. <laughs> it's basically like Top Gun Maverick yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> for germ-cell tumor nerds. Well, hey, I, I think, you know, to me, this has really just demonstrated the nuances, the thinking, the planning, the multidisciplinary complex nature of managing these patients really from the get-go. Again, as we kind of approach an hour, maybe, Doug, we can start with you. Any kind of general advice, parting thoughts for the listenership? So this was my first podcast and I, I would say that I've just tasted the blood and I'm sure I'm going to long for more of it. And uh, <laughs> let's let's take it to the next one. I think a lot of things in the, in our penalties, but, you know, I feel that somebody who's getting trained as a urologist, irrespective of which center you're getting trained in, one should take an opportunity to at least observe a few RPLNDs, even if you have to you know, travel across centers to do it because I think having witnessed a few RPLNDs is going to make you a good urologist even if you don't end up being a urologist. It, it teaches you a lot of things. Once once you have kind of befriended the retroperitoneum, then it, it makes you a better surgeon in, in all aspects. Yeah, I think basically really what you're speaking towards is experience and trying to get as much as you can, whether it's, you know, seeing as many as you can or or talking about this, I think just from our conversation today, you can see this is a complex, you know, for something that doesn't, it's pretty rare, right? Testis cancer is pretty rare. There's a lot of nuances to it. And so I think, you know, trying to get as much experience, if you're a patient trying to go somewhere where you're going to benefit from experience, I think is important. But yeah, I mean, I think 
the more you can see, the more you can be around it, the more you can talk about it, hear others talk about it. I think it just increases your knowledge. So, because this is not something that's, you know, it's, this isn't prostate cancer that's happening in every hospital all across the world. And so you got to, you got to immerse yourself in a rare disease and try to see and, and do as much as you can to gain these little nuances. Well, I absolutely appreciate that. I mean, for me, you know, I think there's two cases in urologic oncology, RPLNDs and cable thrombus, where there's so much variability. You've just got to be dialed in. You've got to run through your steps. You've got to prepare the team. You've got to study the films. You've got to kind of run through all the possibilities in your head. And the variability is actually, I think, part of the draw. It's not routine. It's not standard. The only things I would add were, you know, as you're starting, I think there's very little downside to doing these in conjunction with people that have done more of them. These can turn on a dime. As an attending, I'm I'm pretty hands-on. You know, it's kind of not the point of this, but as there's been a shift away from open surgery to minimally invasive surgery, sometimes I feel like a experienced set of hands can be a little bit more challenged to come by. But um, again, you know, a wealth of knowledge here between Clint and Guggen. Absolutely appreciate it and stay tuned for the for the sequel. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.